your own personal Bible. We're going to be reading this morning from Matthew, the first book, first verse. So Matthew 1, 1 through 21. So we can first start with a prayer. If you can bow your heads with me, please. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, we ask that you open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to your precious words and message. Bless this morning's reading. May it convey the image of you to our hearts and have the effect that you intended on our lives. In your loving name, amen. So we're going to be reading from Matthew, and in the Pew Bible, that's page 807. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abishah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Ezekiah, and Ezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Jatil, and Jatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and the Azor the father of Zodak, and Zodak the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may now sit. So we exceeding our fun quotient already in here uh, this morning. It uh, seems like we may be. Well, I trust and uh, pray that you have uh, been able to get away uh, or to gather with friends here and give thanks to God these last few days. For uh, for me, it is very good to be back home. It is good to be here with the Cornerstone family. Uh, We were in San Diego uh, for Thanksgiving, and we had, uh, I think, a record crowd for uh, Thanksgiving dinner, 30 
31 of us uh, gathered around the Thanksgiving table. That uh, required the table to be outdoors and to borrow all the tables from church and the chairs from church. Uh, My wife's from a very large family. You see the tents there, so uh, we got to sleep outside while we were down there for five days or so. But it was San Diego, not Auburn, so no uh, complaints. Uh, we had a view of the sunset and the ocean even from, uh, from their backyard. The time with family was not only wonderful, but seeing God in his creation. Uh, the day before Thanksgiving, we were at the beach in Del Mar. It's my son Michael there uh, coming in on a wave. And then uh, up on the cliffs, this is the favorite picture I took of uh, Michael and his uh, cousin Jacqueline just waiting for the waves uh, to come in the night before Thanksgiving. It was a wonderful, uh, wonderful time uh, to give thanks to our God and to see his beauty uh, in creation. But today we, uh, we pivot, we shift uh, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, uh, from Thanksgiving uh, to Advent and to the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we as uh, evangelicals, we believe that all of the scripture is God-breathed, and it is without error of any kind. Is that right? Can I get an amen? Do we, be- we believe that. That's kind of what makes us uh, evangelicals. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed, And we also believe it is useful, or we say it is useful. But when we're reading through our Bibles, and we come to a so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and a so-and-so begat so-and-so, or we come to a chapter where it says so-and-so reigned uh, for so long, and -and so-and-so reigned for so long, what what do we have a tendency to do when we get to those sections? We just kind of move right along, don't we? We just, I mean, we believe in its veracity. We believe that it is important But it's hard to see that that's useful to us. And so we have to do some work. We have to do some labor uh, in those genealogical minds uh, to find what God has for us there. And that's really what I want to do today. And thank you, Randall. You know, it's tough to assign someone to read that section of uh, passage, uh, a genealogy. Randall was able to get up here and read that, and now I don't have to go through the whole thing. So thank you, Randall, for doing that. Uh, We're still going to get into it, but I'm not going to read through the whole thing. But what I want to do and what I want to pray is that uh, I want to pray Psalm 119.18 for us, uh, that the Lord would open our eyes, uh, that we may see wonderful things Uh, in his law, in this genealogy. In fact, let's just take a moment right now and pray, and then we'll get into into this passage. Father in heaven, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Uh, We we, we confess to you very freely that as we have read our Bibles uh, over the years, that we often kind of cruise through certain sections of Scripture, including this one. We kind of skim over it, and and it's difficult for us to see the usefulness of, to our daily lives for, uh, when it comes to genealogies and, and various other kinds of passages of Scripture. So we pray today that you, would, uh, that you would change us, that you would show us what you want to show us, and that we would be changed more and more into the image of Jesus, uh, even by this genealogy today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's take a look here at uh, Matthew chapter 1. And let's 
one of the very first things that we need to recognize in this genealogy is how uh, it is structured. And we basically get that structure in verse 17. Let's take a look at that. Let me just read verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And so if I took the time to read through all of this again, we would see that Matthew has organized this genealogy into these three sections, uh, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile uh, to Jesus. And he did this uh, with, in order to place an emphasis on Jesus being the son of David. Look back up at verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And throughout uh, Matthew's gospel, in several places, Jesus is identified as the son of David. So he has structured this into three sections of 14 generations uh, with an emphasis on David uh, and, of course, the ultimate emphasis on the birth of Jesus. Jesus is, of course, the Messiah and the greater David, the David who, who uh, who was to come. Now, another thing that we need to know about this genealogy, we need to think like a first century Jewish reader. And that first century Jewish reader would ask the question, why has he structured it this way? Because genealogies uh, in the ancient world were not comprehensive. So he has selected certain names here. And in fact, uh, the way the NIV translate this, uh, translates it uh, each in each verse was the father of, so-and-so was the father of, uh, a, a freer translation of that would be something like uh, so-and-so was the ancestor of. So it doesn't mean necessarily that that next person was that person's father. It could have been their grandfather or their great-grandfather or so on. So again, he's arranged these into groups of 14 with purpose, There weren't necessarily 14. In fact, if we compared the genealogies and did all this sort of thing, which I I could do, but then I would really be losing with you. I would really lose you. Are you with me still? Are you guys tracking with me? Uh, I don't want to lose you in this genealogy stuff here. So, But the first first century Jewish reader would ask the question, why has he grouped these into 14? He could have done 15. He could have done 16. He did 14. And probably the answer to that question is that David's name itself is numerically represented by the number 14. In the first century, Roman numerals hadn't come about yet, and so each letter had a numerical representation. And in Hebrew, this was written in Greek, but Hebrew would have been in mind here. Matthew is a Jew, and we have a Jewish audience here. We have three consonants. One, the Dalit is four, and the Vav is six, and the Dalit is four, and so 14. So we have this emphasis on David. We have this emphasis on Jesus fulfilling these promises from the Old Testament that he is the son of David, the greater son that was going to come. He is the Messiah that we have been waiting for, and he is connected through this lineage to, uh, to David. Let's take a look at one of the promises or prophecies about uh, this uh, greater David that was going to come from 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, this is God speaking to David, so the you here is David. The Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you 
who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. That particular sentence right there is referring to Solomon. This descendant of Jesus Solomon, a descendant of David, rather Solomon, his son is the one who's going to build a house, going to build a temple for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Passage goes on. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the first century Jew would have this this Davidic promise, this Davidic covenant in his mind that there's going to be a throne that's going to be established one day forever. And Matthew has taken pains to go through this genealogy to say, here he is coming. This is the line that he has come from. And this one who's going to reign forever has come. He has been born in Bethlehem and he is going to reign forever. And as we read this uh, passage in uh, 2 Samuel 7, we have to have a right understanding of how biblical prophecy works. And the way biblical prophecy works is if we want to think of the prophecy itself or the promise here in 2 Samuel itself as, as a glass, this is the, uh, the, think of those words, the prophecy as a glass, and then the Lord over time is filling that glass up and fulfilling the prophetic word here. He, he did it in part with Solomon, but he is doing it so much more with the greater descendant, the greater one who is going to come, the greater David, and this is part of why Matthew has arranged his genealogy this way. So this is how a first century reader would, would read this, and I think how we should be responding if we take the time to look through this is it has been, a, it, it took a long time for this to happen. From David until the Messiah, the greater David, who's going to reign on the throne forever, it's about a thousand years for that much of the water in the glass of the prophetic word to be filled up. But it is not filled yet. That cup still has more to go because Jesus is not in Jerusalem reigning on his throne, is he? We've got chaos over there in the Middle East. We have chaos in our world. And so we are still waiting his second coming. And this is really what the season of Advent is all about. We are in between these comings, and we are waiting for the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate reign of Jesus to happen. Revelation 22, we have this promise or this prophecy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so we have a long, we have a long wait. Uh, we, we have been waiting a long time, and, and we don't really know how much further we have to wait. He could come, I believe, today. He could come a long time from now. But again, one of the things I think if we took time and we read this passage, one of the things that we would come, come to is, is, is that we can become complacent. And spiritual apathy can come into our hearts and into our minds regarding this second coming. We're excited about Christmas. You guys were ready to go and say Merry Christmas. You did really well on that, by the way. Um, We we don't have a problem believing that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. 
and was born in Bethlehem. We, we don't have a problem getting passionate about them, but we have much more of a problem, don't we, being passionate about him coming back for us and anticipating that coming. And so we need passion. We need to have our hearts uh, turned uh, toward the Lord and expecting uh, his coming. And one of the things I think that we need to do, and if I can give you a, a homework assignment this uh, Advent season, this Christmas season, one of the things that we need to do is to spend time together. The Lord has just been impressing this on me uh, from going back just a few weeks now. Uh, Adam and Libby, who, by the way, are uh, the Talbot families in Seattle, they'll be back with us. They're, they've got a long drive. We can pray for them uh, tomorrow. I think they're driving back from Seattle. But uh, a couple weeks ago, we were able to go away with them and uh, to a little pastor's conference in the Bay Area. And the first, we were only there for one night, the four of us all together. And that first night that we were uh, away, we found ourselves uh, sitting in a hotel lobby talking for uh, several hours. It was a long time. And one of the things that we reflected on as we sat there and talked is how we don't do this at home. We don't sit and talk with other Christians without, without a deadline, without things we have to go to. And our hearts were, our hearts were stirred. Our hearts were, uh, were blessed. And we said, we need, to, we need to make time to do this kind of thing more often. And so one of the ways that we can respond to this genealogy and the fact that Jesus has yet to come, he has come, but the, the prophecy, 2 Samuel 7, hasn't been fully fulfilled. He's coming back again. One of the ways that we can uh, stir our hearts this Christmas season is to simply sit and spend time with other Christians. We don't necessarily have to talk about the second coming. We didn't talk about the second coming. We just talked as believers in Christ uh, at length in the Lord uh, stirred our hearts. Uh, someone else that has been speaking to me powerfully that the Lord has been using is a guy named uh, J.C. Ryle. And I want to quote from him. So the, the first point, and I've got three this morning, the first point, what I've been talking about is God is slow from our perspective, not from his, but from our perspective, he's slow, but he's certain in keeping his promises. And this is something that we should remind ourselves of as we look at this genealogy and think about the second coming, that he is certain to keep his promises. Jesus is going to come back, and we need to live in light of that. But back to this fellowship and this assignment to sit and talk with other people uh, during the uh, Advent season. J.C. Ryle, he writes this. He says, We seem to live in an endless hurry and can hardly sit down and take a breath before we are off again. Goodbye treads on the heels of how do you do? the cares of this world, the necessary duties of life, the demands of our families, the work of our various stations and callings, all these things appear to eat up our days to make it impossible to have long, quiet times of communion with God's people. But blessed be God, it shall not always be so. The hour cometh and shall soon be here when goodbye and farewell shall be words that are laid aside and buried forever. When we meet in the world where the former things are passed away, where there is no more sin and no more sorrow, no more poverty and no more money, no more need of anxiety for families, no more sickness, no more pain, no more old age, no more death, no more change. When we meet in that endless state of being, calm and restful and unhurried, who can tell what the blessedness of the change will be? 
So our, our assignment this, this Advent season is to practice this and to spend some time together with Christians, uh, just enjoying fellowship and asking God that he would stir our hearts and, and give us an increased passion and increased zeal for him uh, that he is going to be coming back soon for us this time of waiting. So that's the first thing I want to see this in, in this, uh, the first of three in this genealogy, the centrality of David, that Jesus is the greater David. He is the promised Messiah. He's the one that's going to establish his throne forever one day, and we are waiting for that coming. The second thing I want us to see uh, out of this genealogy, really the second thing that stands out, would have stood out to the ancient reader and stands out to us as well, is the inclusion of women in this, uh, in this uh, genealogy. Let's take a look at a few of them briefly. In verse 3, we have Tamar. Uh, verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, you may need a little refresher on who Tamar is. She is the one who uh, was not a prostitute, but disguised herself as a prostitute and deceived her father-in-law because she has been barren and she wants to have a child and to carry on a lineage. And she has relations with her father-in-law. And here she is in the genealogy. Uh, This would catch the reader's attention. Yeah, this isn't the person you or I would think to include in the genealogical list as we're putting this thing together. So that's Tamar. She, uh, she is not uh, an Israelite. And then we come down to verse 5. Uh, Sam, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So here we have another woman that we would not think of as putting in the genealogy, and we'll come back to her in a moment. She's also not a Jew. So we have women We have non-Jews. We have someone who pretended to be a prostitute, someone who was actually a prostitute. And then we come to Ruth in verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Ruth is known throughout the Old Testament. What what follows her? Ruth what? Anybody? Ruth the, the Moabitess. Yeah, she's not one of us. Ruth the Moabitess, she's from these these people. She's not an Israelite. This is not the person you would expect here. And then jump down to verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This is an interesting way to describe Bathsheba here. Uh, Uriah's wife. Uh, Uriah, not an Israelite. Again, an emphasis. Here are these Gentile or Gentile-related women included in this genealogy of the great, the greater David, the son of David, the one who's going to reign on the throne in Jerusalem forever, who's going to make everything right, who's going to establish the new heavens and the new earth. This is, this is unexpected. And then finally, the last uh, woman is the one that we would expect. In verse 16, uh, we have Mary. D.A. Carson, he writes this, Uh, He says, inclusion of these women in the Messiah's genealogy instead of an all-male listing, which was customary, or at least the names of such great matriarchs as Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, shows that Matthew is conveying more than merely genealogical data. He's doing more than just giving us a list here. There is theology in this genealogy. And I had us read through verse 21 today for a reason. Look at verse 21 says she will give birth to a son 
And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And I think this sentence, this verse, he will save his people from their sins is looking back in particular to these Gentile pagan women that are unexpected in this lineage and genealogy of Jesus. And there is something being said very loud and clear about the gospel and about the ministry of Jesus Christ here in the genealogy. That he has come to save messed up people. That he is going to be the savior of the weak, of the poor, of the needy, and to all the nations. Not just to the Jews, but to the nations, to women, to Gentiles, to everybody. And not only is he going to be the savior of the nations and of women and of Gentiles, but he wants to use them. He wants to use them. You know, I don't know uh, your thoughts. Uh, I like R- Wayne's phrase, uh, what, how much of a Pharisee you are in your mind. At times, that that's a temptation for you. I like Wayne's phrase, a recovering Pharisee. Uh, I think I'm a recovering Pharisee. Uh, when I think of Rahab, um, you know, the first thoughts that probably come to my mind is that she was a prostitute and she was a liar. And I think that's a Pharisee kind of way of thinking about Rahab. This is not the way this genealogy or the Bible uh, characterizes or speaks about uh, Rahab. Rahab is in the heroes of faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab was an obedient believer in Jesus Christ and makes it into the heroes of the faith chapter uh, in in chapter 11. And we maybe need to go back and look a little bit at, at how this happened and have a different picture of Rahab. We need to spend some time and linger in places like Matthew chapter 1 and think about Rahab and the gospel from a more biblical perspective and not from the pharisaical perspective that that I may have in my mind. Let's look at what happened with Rahab, going back now to Joshua 2. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So the king's going to one of, her, one of his constituents, Rahab, asks for her to, to surrender these guys. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them uh, on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, and this is, this is why I've gone back to this passage, what she, she says here. Let's, let's, this is the last uh, section. 
She says, I know that the Lord, she's speaking to the men, the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, and, in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sister's with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. What we have here on the screen is essentially Rahab's conversion. We have her profession of faith. She, unlike the rest of her peoples, recognized the miraculous things that the Lord had done. And she, we could think of her as a betrayer, But that would be wrong. We should be thinking her of someone who switched to the right team, to the team of the Lord, the God of the universe. And she has a long way to go in her sanctification, just like you and I do, but she has come to faith here. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so Rahab finds her way into the Heroes of the Faith, chapter 11. She finds her way into the book of James as an illustration of someone whose faith is genuine. And she's included, I think, with these other ladies here in this genealogy uh, to show us that God wants to redeem, not only to redeem us, but he wants to use us to advance his kingdom. He wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use someone like Rahab to advance his kingdom and not to just be content with redemption, Not to be just content with God has saved me, but God wants to use you. As he used Rahab here, he wants to use you. I don't know how he wants to use you, but I believe he wants to use you and he wants to use me in increasingly significant ways. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, this Advent season, I'm all for the Christmas parties and the wreaths and the getting together with family. I love all that stuff. But I want you to ask yourself this Advent season, how does God want to use you more significantly than he has been to advance his kingdom? I believe he wants to use you. I believe he wants to use me more than he has been. He wants to awaken us. This is part of why he's put these ladies here in this genealogy. I want to take people like this and people like us with all of our deficiencies and all of our problems, and I want to use you for my glory and the advancement of my kingdom. I want to introduce you to a guy. I'm going to show you a brief clip clip, uh, about a four-minute film here as they cue it up. Someone that God has used significantly. And as we're watching it, uh, I I want us to think about whatever is holding you back, whatever is holding me back from an advanced boldness, an advanced uh, willingness to be used by God, that that would be diminishing and that you would be taking concrete steps to to pursue uh, ministry and kingdom advancement. Go Go ahead and roll it.
Living with Ozzy is definitely not easy. A lot of people don't understand Silverpozzy and they'll treat me different. A lot of people are either afraid of me or very uncomfortable to be around and that hurts me because I want to be everybody's friend and I can't help the fact that I have CP. My name is Walter Fono Turner and I live in Central Austin, Go Long Owns. Some of the struggles that I face with CP is I got to do stuff that a normal person will never have to do that. Call around on the carpet every day. Sometimes it wells on my body. I lose a comfort of my device that is called a and I peck on the keys just like a chicken. I get around town in my electric wheelchair. It allows me freedom to get around on my own. The other thing is loneliness. I am my own gaiters in me with I am love to my loneliness. But Jesus means everything to me. Without Jesus, I know I would have committed suicide by now because life is not what it without Jesus. All times come every day. Most of the time I try to knock them down because the gospel has changed my life in a great way that I will never ultimately know. Worship is my life. God has created me to worship and Jesus paid the ultimate path and if I don't totally worship him, it's like 
I don't know with okay dialing from me and that is so powerful. One day I will be in eternity with God. He's come into the world to save sinners like Rahab and sinners like Roger Flarney Jr. and sinners like you and me. And we have a variety of things that get in our way of fulfilling the ministry, the service, the calling that God has in our lives. Whether in the case of Rahab, it's, it's, a, it's a skeleton, it's a history of being uh, the former prostitute, the harlot. She was able to overcome that. And to serve the Lord. We know that by the fact that she made it into Hebrews 11 and James 2. She was not bound or hindered by her past. This guy that we just saw on the screen has struggled and fought in his life in ways most, uh, probably none of us in here have. And yet he is advancing God's kingdom. He's touched the life of my family. He's touched the life of all of us here just by sharing his story. God is saying to us this Advent season that he wants to move us from where we are of being content and being saved to actually being very bold and intentional about making disciples and loving others for the sake of the kingdom and taking risks. This is part of why I believe these ladies are in this genealogy and why verse 21 points back to them. The first century reader, why are these pagan prostitutes in this genealogy? Because this greater David is coming to save people like that and to redeem them and to change them. That's why. So he is looking not only uh, to redeem, but to use us. This is our, my second point today. And my third point, I'm going to be very brief, brief uh, with. Uh, my third point is that the birth of Jesus uh, is like no other birth in history. We all know this. I'm not saying anything new to us. But I want to show you what is perhaps a different reason for believing it. That if we linger in places like Matthew 1 and other difficult passages, difficult to see as useful to our lives, I'm making a broader case here that we should spend time in places like Matthew 1 and those other chapters where it says so-and-so reigned until such-and-such in time, and we want to just cruise through. But God has things to show us in those passages. And the last thing I want us to see here, and the King James, I've got my King James Bible here, actually translates this first chapter better than the ESV or the NIV. There's no problem with those. They're they're trying to make it make sense to us, and we don't use the word beget anymore. So they've replaced beget with was the father of. But the reality is, in the original text, there's just a verb there, Just, just one finite verb there's no was or helping verb there's no word for father it just says beget 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 
the Greek word is genao. And I counted this morning in the King James Version, there are 39 begets. And there are, is a reason that there are 39 begets. All right, I'm going to pick it up in verse 13 in the King James Version if you want to follow along with me as I, as I come to my final point. And Zerubbabel begat Abihud, and Abihud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliehud, and Eliehud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathen, and Mathen begat Jacob. Verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. What God wants us to see here is that after 39 begets, after 39 genaos, he changes in verse 16. We expect it to come again, another beget, and Jacob begat Joseph. And then we expect Joseph begat Jesus, or Mary begat Jesus. But instead, we have of whom was born Jesus. We have a clue in the grammar and the repetition of all of these begats that all of these other people in this lineage were born the same way you and I have been born. They were conceived the same way you and I were conceived. We're really talking about conception here, not about birth. And we have in this verse a powerful uh, cue, a, a powerful pointer to what's going to come down the road that this Savior was born of a virgin, that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that He is a birth like no other. And so the absence of the beget here is, is screaming to us that this David isn't like Solomon. This son of David, rather, isn't like Solomon. He isn't like anyone else in this lineage. He is the son of David, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the King of Kings. And our only appropriate response is to bow down and to worship Him. He is the King. He is the Savior. He is our Lord. And He's calling us this Advent season to worship Him. Will you pray with me? Father in Heaven, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You even for these passages that are difficult for us to read and to study and to see is useful. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be eager in expecting Jesus' return for us. That we would be anticipating his return and that it would change the way that we live our lives. That we would be looking forward to eternity. We thank you that you have shown us again, that you are certain in keeping your promises. Lord, we also ask that you would help us to increase in our boldness and our risk-taking as Rahab was able to put aside her path, her past and follow you in obedience. Lord, we pray for anyone here, I pray for anyone here who has any kind of skeletons in their past, that they would be put aside, Lord, and that they would be increasingly yielded to you and being used to advance your kingdom. We pray that we would be looking this Advent season to be used by you, and we pray that we would be worshiping you day in and day out. 
And we pray that we would do that now with our voices. As we stand and as we sing, we sing to the Savior who has died for our sins and who one day will come and the cup will be completely filled and we will have a new heavens and a new earth. And the Son of David, the King of Kings, will reign in a perfectly recreated new heavens and new earth. Help us to long for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.